Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. So there was a lot of trepidation about what would happen with China GDP data. Of course, China being one of the test cases for what happens to an economy when it's going through COVID. So we got the third quarter GDP data over the weekend and year over year, it was up 4.9%, which was quite the miss from what economists were looking for, which was 5.5%. It was, however, better than the previous quarter, 3.2%. But really, with China, you have to take a step back and talk to somebody who knows how all of this is put together. And no one better to do that than Leland Miller, China Beige Book International founder. So Leland, 4.9% doesn't sound like a bad rate of growth for an economy that's been hit extremely hard by this coronavirus. Explain to us why this is a shocker. Well, you know, this is a really important number, but it's a really important number for political reasons more than economic reasons. So you have China saying to the world, look at our response, look at how well we've done, we're back to year-on-year growth, and look at everybody else. They haven't done, done as well, you know, we're someone to look up to. Now, the difference between 4.9 and 5.5, I, I understand that the street is, is agitating over, over the miss here, but this number isn't very realistic to start with. Uh, you know, if you look down at what our data are showing, you're, not, you're still not seeing that year-on-year uh, improvement. You're seeing tremendous month-on-month, quarter-on-quarter improvement. Things are certainly getting better, uh, but it was very important for them to have a year-on-year number uh, and, and uh, improve, improvement, and, uh, and so that's what, they're, that's what they're currently announcing. Right, and now we also got retail sales, for example, year-over-year up 3.3%, uh, but still you know, down 7.2% in September in terms of uh, year-to-date, year-over-year. So a lot of mixed data. So give us your impression of how the Chinese economy is doing. So as you say, you know, all the data is pretty managed. But at the same time, China does seem to be growing. Is that the case? Consumers do seem to be spending. China does seem to be getting over the hit from the coronavirus. Sure. Th- you know, things are getting better. Uh, you know, it's still a supply-side recovery. If you look at what's happening on the output side, that has been what's driving GDP. You know, there was a better uh, September figure for, for, for retail sales. But if you look at retail sales uh, uh, from beginning of the year to now and compare it to last year, it, it is, like you said, down over 7%. So this is not a consumption-driven economy. This is not a demand recovery. This is the Chinese government deciding that they need to get their numbers up, and so they're making factories work harder and produce more stuff. Uh, there is something to be said for getting the growth number up to some degree, but I think the idea that people are, are really worried about whether this is 4% or 3% or 5%, it's not a terribly healthy recovery. It's just a much more healthy uh, dynamic and recovery than what we're seeing in the rest of the world. So Leland, how much of that sort of unhealthiness that you're talking about is related to coronavirus and how much was coming anyway? Because it was always a question mark about how much the trade war had impacted China's economy and just the flow of goods and services between China and the US. Right. Well, I think what, what the coronavirus did is it put China in a box uh, and forced it to use tools like property, uh, like heavy infrastructure stimulus, uh, to get the growth number back up, uh, which was something that it, it didn't want to do and it hadn't been doing for the past several years. Uh, when you look at our data and you look at official data, you see that since 2016-2017, when they were very worried about the growth metrics in the run-up to the party congress, things had actually slowed down over time, and yet the government did not go back to this, let's juice, uh, let's build bridges to nowhere, let's, let's 
let's build these uh, infrastructure developments no one wants to be in. They had basically pushed away from that because they are legitimately worried about debt. What I think coronavirus did is push them into such a corner that they said, look, we're going to have to do what we're going to have to do, and we're going to get this growth number up. So it is unhealthy levels of debt that are building this up. Uh, it's it's the same dynamic seen in, in much of the rest of the world, but you know China has a much bigger problem with this historically. So uh, th- there is a recovery. That's good. But yes, the way we're getting there is not healthy at all. You have said that China made some major clandestine changes to its economic data reporting over the weekend. What were these clandestine changes? It all sounds very cloak and dagger. Yeah, we've been we've been having a field day on on our Twitter feed uh, talking about this. But look, it, you know, if you look at fixed asset investment, which is the proxy that the Chinese use for 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 investment, uh, you see that uh, in 2019 there was a number for the first three quarters, and then you see a number for the first three quarters of 2020. The number in 2019 was three trillion yuan higher than in 2020. But when the when Beijing put out their data last night, uh, they said that things were up 8.8%. So we were parsing through the, how was this a typo? Why would they possibly do it? What we found is that essentially the Chinese government has reserved the right to no longer report figures regularly. What they're going to do is they're going to rejigger the, the figures as new inputs come in, but they're not going to announce what those new inputs are. They're not going to announce what the, the changing metrics are. They're not going to announce what the components of this sort of index they're building is. They're simply going to re- uh, report uh, a number, and that number will be new based on the, ne- the needed changes every year. So you're going to have, you know, you have basically three trillion yuan that they made go away in their fixed asset investment data to report a year-on-year increase. It doesn't make any sense at all, but they've reserved the right to do this going forward. Leland, what will you be looking for next out of China in order to give us an indication of, you know, not just the health of the Chinese economy, but what that would mean for the health of the U.S. economy at this point? Well, you know, I, I think on the chi- Chinese side, you got to look at the at retail and how it's recovering over time, and not just not just for for one or two months. Uh, but look, China's recovery is going to be based on what happens in the rest of the world. If the rest of the world does not get coronavirus contained, we, mm. we dip down into a second wave. Then China's data yep. are going to be hurt. Its recovery is going to be hurt because it's not divorced from the rest of the world, no matter what it's doing right. back home. Leland, thank you so much. As always, love to get you on because. You do all of your research as well, and uh, you know you, you you gather the data just like um, many economists do, but uh, on the ground. Leland Miller, China Beige Book. Dunkin' Donuts, remember, like to make the claim that America runs on Dunkin', and I'm sure it was true a lot of the time. Well, here is the man who Dunkin' ran on. Robert Rosenberg is the former CEO of what is now Dunkin' Brands, used to be Dunkin' Donuts, and author of Around the Corner to Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. Robert, looking at Dunkin' Donuts now, how does it resemble the company you first took over? Well, very different. <laughs> when I when I joined the company uh, as CEO, I was 25 years old, a cocky kid, fresh with an MBA, and we had something on the order of 100 stores. I think now today we have something on the order nearing 12,000 in 41 countries. It's been transformational. Pretty phenomenal. Well, a good leader is needed in order to scale that kind of business, particularly, you know, something that you could call a generic enough business. I mean, I know Dunkin' Donuts are very, very different from other types of donuts out there, but there are a lot of donut chains. So how did you do that? What kind of leadership skills does it take to scale a business like that? 
a great team, uh, a clear strategy. And when we got it right, we were very successful. When I got it wrong, we suffered the consequences. Luckily, in the 35 years, we got more years right than we did get wrong. Uh, and a great product. And a commitment, I think, basically to do and to create a, uh, a set of services and goods better than the competition. And that was always what kept us agile and kept us uh, uh, creative and growing and changing as the times change. Consumers and competition are constantly changing, and companies have to change as well. But those were the ingredients, I think, that made for superior performance for us. Obviously, it's a different set of challenges every year, every month, every day in business, right? But a pandemic is something that doesn't come along too often. If you were running Duncan now and you saw what was happening all sorts of restaurant owners not being able to save their businesses. You know, big businesses depending on PPP funds in order to, to continue. What would you do? I mean, how do you survive something that's just completely all-encompassing like that? I never had to face anything quite like a uh, yeah. worldwide pandemic, but did have to face uh, certain uh, cataclysmic or existential threats to the very survival of the business. I think... Uh, I'd comment that the pandemic, as I see it, and its impact on the restaurant industry, really is a tale of two different stories. On the one hand, the first story is kind of devastating. It basically, the National Restaurant Association says that they expect something on the order of 15 to 20 percent of all restaurants open, and 650,000 restaurants may be permanently closed when the dust clears. That's painful. There may be a million and a half or more people out of work. That's also disastrous and painful. Uh, on the other hand, the second tale is a lot more optimistic. Those firms that invested early, which is one of the elements of facing a crisis of pre-preparation, that invested in convenience and delivering on all platforms, however consumers wanted to access the product, drive through windows, home delivery, uh, um, online ordering, uh, understanding the, uh, the, uh, the application of the social network that exists, uh, social media. Those companies that invested, in my view, will not only survive the pandemic, but will thrive. Companies like Duncan that have invested in those kinds of um, new developments, pre-preparing, continually looking to delight their customers better than the competition, will be the ones on the other side. Unfortunately, there's going to be some pain left by the independents and a lot of people out of work. Hopefully, those chains that survive will be able to absorb those but it only will be over time. Mm, forewarned is forearmed. These days, there's a lot of uh, quote-unquote business heroes in Silicon Valley. There's a, you know, people look to some unlikely characters for inspiration. Who inspires you in management these days, Robert? Well, he's no longer actively engaged in the management of his business. He now runs a, a major th philanthropic activity. But the person I, I'm most inspired by is Bill and Melinda Gates. I find them to be extraordinary citizens, extraordinary people. And I marvel at their brilliance and at their commitment to mankind. And of those CEOs that are currently in the CEO chair and in the boardroom chair, who do you admire? Well, I admire the, the people that I'm closest to uh, and the ones that I had the privilege of being able to serve with day in and day out. So I was on the board of Sonic, and I find Cliff Hudson, who was the longtime 20-year CEO of Sonic Restaurants, an outstanding leader. I also found, um, oh, goodness, his name escapes me for the moment. Oh, Patrick Doyle from, from Domino's was an extraordinary leader and ranked among the best 
leaders by CEO Magazine for years. Uh, both both of them were extraordinary leaders. Agile, kind, smart, and just thoughtful people. Robert, I have to ask you about what your thoughts are as we approach the election, and you know, a very very divided country. Um, you know, many issues plaguing the country and it just seems to be um, sometimes just difficult to even talk about it because you know finding middle ground or finding sort of anybody willing to engage is just a little bit difficult what's the first priority that the next president whether it's Donald Trump or a Biden administration what's what should be the first priority in running this country Thoughtful planning uh, and, and setting a moral tone for the country and bringing us back together. I think that our country can only take so much chaos at any one point in time. So a good leader has to be very clear and crisp about both the strategy, what the country wants to be, what it, what it wants to have, and the four or five specific levers that are most important to pull in order to be able to bridge scarce resources. So whether it's a company, a family, uh, or a country, and that's a critical element and the second element is to surround yourself with the best people, complementary set of skills that will help you accomplish that. And then you have to communicate to all the constituencies to mobilize them behind it. That works in a company and it works in a country. And we need a leader who's got those abilities. And also you know, it certainly sounds pretty easy when you say it, Robert. So I hope that whoever starts to run the country next reads your book. It's just out and it's a fantastic read. It's called Around the Corner to Around the World. A dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. And you can have a donut with every lesson there for, for your dozen lessons. Robert Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Brands and, uh, of course, Dunkin' Donuts as it was then. Thank you for joining us. Just a, a wonderful conversation. Let's bring in RJ Gallo. He's Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of the Municipal Bond Group and delighted to have him. RJ, I have to ask you, how much time have you given to the competing tax plans? Um, You know, obviously, we're looking at more of a likelihood that there's going to be a President Biden and a Biden administration at the moment, but it's not fully, you know, for sure, but he's definitely ahead by a long shot in some of the polls. And and you have to have done a little bit of work on it. What have you decided? Well, the the tax plans of the two candidates are, are vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't... Uh, I agree with you that, the, that the, the polls make it pretty likely that President Biden is, is coming, <laughs> as opposed to being Vice President Biden. And... I would just suggest that it, it's just not baked in the cake yet. I think that this election is going to be closer than a lot of the polls suggest. Remember, it does come down to state by state, and I think there are a number of toss-up states where President Trump um, may have some of his voters being undersampled and not showing up in the traditional polls. I know that's somewhat of a, of a, of a partisan view, but I'm just saying objectively that's what happened in 2016. We saw a lot of Trump support that was not accurately assessed by the polls leading up to it. And the the shy Trump supporter, too. Well, given that, then, and the fact that you're head of the municipal bond group, are there states where you're sort of, um, you know, making making that bet or or loading up the boat a little bit? Well, I would say this. I I think that the greatest impact on munis from the, the election outcome would be in the event of a blue blue wave. So Biden wins, Capitol Hill, House, Senate are completely in Democratic hands. That would open the door for, uh, for an increase back to 39.6 for the top marginal tax rate, which is where it was before the 2017 Trump tax cuts. Uh, it would also impose a minimum of 39.6 on all investment income for people who make more than a million dollars. Uh, that 
on average, would increase demand for municipal bonds. Also, banks who shed munis in droves after their corporate tax rate went to 21 from 35, they would be facing a 28% tax rate under the Biden tax plan, also bullish for munis. So I think munis would, would fare relatively well compared to other fixed income in a blue wave, undeniably. Um, and you'd also probably get a bigger stimulus plan. So a bigger stimulus plan will help all state and local governments. Which ones would move the most? The cheapest ones. Uh, you know, so, so states like New Jersey and Illinois, where spreads are wide, you think their bonds might actually fare pretty well in a relative sense in a Biden victory. So it does seem like there's at least, you know, some kind of chance of a, a nice little payday here. How are you hedging for that? Even if you don't believe that that's what's going to happen or, you're, you know, you're, you're more 50-50 than, than convinced either way, there must be some hedging uh, trades that you've been putting on. You know, I think that um, markets are pretty bad with binary risks. Um, you know, a zero-one outcome uh, is just not easy to perfectly price in in advance of the election. Uh, so in terms of just adding duration or reducing duration or adding munis or reducing munis, uh, you, you know, you, you, you need to have a little bit more confidence than, than 50-50. So it makes it tough, since I think the chances of this election being indeterminate come Election Day and maybe, in fact, being contested, I think that's greater than the markets are currently pricing. So if you're really going to try to hedge, uh, you know, to your question, I think you would need to go into options markets. Okay. Um, there's not a lot of options on munis. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true, <laughs> so I guess. it makes it really challenging. Um, I, I think uh, you know, one important fact here, if we have a contested election, market you know, risk assets don't like it, Treasury yields probably go down. Ultimately, regardless of outcome, that event will fade, and we will know who the winner is. Uh, Biden would be probably more bullish for munis. Uh, Trump would be somewhat less bullish for munis. But on average, we're, uh, no matter what happens, we're going to get a stimulus plan. The question of sizing and time is still open. In fact, we're still talking about it before the election. I just doubt that that's going to happen. And how much states and, and local governments get as well, of course. Absolutely. Extraordinarily different. Um, RJ, how are you trading the coronavirus in the various states? Uh, obviously, Wisconsin is just in trouble right now. We had Chicago's mayor just coming out and saying that you know, she wants to avoid lockdowns, but it's getting to that tipping point and... She absolutely will, if necessary. Are you doing any kind of municipal or, you know, trades related to the coronavirus across the states? Well, the coronavirus has had a huge impact on municipal fixed income across states, locals, and revenue bond sectors. Mm. I would say we as a, 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 our investment group, our muni effort, uh, we have been pretty cautious on GOs um, for one primary reason. GOs didn't blow out that much relative to the overall AAA muni scale during the onset of the COVID crisis. Meanwhile, revenue bonds like airports, uh, bonds backed by hotel taxes, areas that were very heavily impacted by the COVID shock, you know, due to travel plummeting, for example. That's where we've looked for opportunities because that's where the risk premiums blew out and bonds became very cheap. As far as GOs are concerned, um, we haven't been playing coronavirus regionally all that much. We have been playing the coronavirus recovery in our, in our revenue bond sectors. So we've added to airports, for example. Uh, we've also, uh, we have some overweight positions in senior care living centers, which have been heavily impacted by this, but there's a lot of good survivors in there. And if we can pick them, we get a nice win. So I think every muni investor worth, worth their salt is, is spending a lot of time on coronavirus, not only geographically, but from a sector standpoint. And on the latter, we've been much more active than playing the geographies. 
So interesting. RJ, thank you for that insight into uh, how your portfolio managers are looking at all of this. RJ Gallo is Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Municipal Bond Group. He manages almost $12 billion, but the whole uh, company has nearly $600 billion in assets under management. So a lot to, a lot to look through there. But then there's a lot of municipal bonds out there as well. It is time now to talk deals. It has been quite the year in many, many different ways. Let's bring in Rob Brown, CEO of Lincoln International. So, Rob, we've had so many deals this year. I mean, today, obviously, there's a a nearly $10 billion all-stock deal in the shale field. But talk to us generally about the appetite for companies getting together this year. Well, the, the appetite right now is uh, incredibly strong. Um, we obviously went through a period earlier this year when the economy shut down and you saw a huge fall off in deals. And what we've seen coming out of that is companies that have a good COVID story to tell, meaning they either performed well during the uh, economic slowdown or they bounced back or they're viewed as a sector that is going to maybe be even more favorable uh, post-COVID those companies are out uh, for sale. And what we're seeing is as investors, both strategic and financial, uh, are aggressively putting money into those businesses. And in many cases, uh, we're seeing valuations of those businesses at the same or even better than pre-COVID levels. So that's an interesting you know, part of the discussion for me. Why are prices holding up. I mean, you know, prices for almost everything are, you know, are not holding up the way they were pre-COVID. And, and, and yet it seems that for companies, there isn't that much of a, a discount, a COVID discount being built into these prices. What am I missing? So, Bonnie, I think it's two things. One, I think it's classic supply and demand. So much capital was raised over the last five years, particularly in the private equity world, but, but also corporations going into the downturn you know, had stockpiles of cash. So you had capital that wanted to be put to work in acquiring companies that for a period of time during this past year, it was unable to be put to work. So you have the demand to put capital to work, and then you have kind of a, a natural selection. The companies that are coming to market right now are the best companies. As I said, they're the ones that showed growth during the downturn. They're the ones that are in resilient sectors that were proven to be essential. So I think as a result of that, you still have more money that wants to be put to work in buying companies than there are high-quality companies to buy, and that supply and demand has kept prices very elevated. What about people trying to negotiate stock for deals? I mean, we definitely saw that that sell-off back in March. Obviously, we've recovered a lot of ground, but at the same time, is it more beneficial for companies to try and do an all-stock deal or a major portion of the deal in stock? I think that's very company-specific. I think to the extent companies feel their stock is still a little undervalued, they tend to not want to use stock. I think to the extent companies feel like, hey, my stock is fairly valued, uh, they want to use it. So we, we are seeing it be used, but we're not seeing it being used in a materially different way than it was pre-COVID. Election. So th- there is the very strong possibility that both the White House and Congress turn blue on November 3rd and that tax policy will change, including the capital gains tax policy. Are you seeing people actually come to market with their business because they don't want to have to face paying what they might have to pay in tax if they wait until there is a potential Biden presidency to sell their business? Yes, we are definitely seeing that. And, and interestingly, as I said, 
it's become a very hot M&A market. And I think what's happening is the, the fear of cap gains rates going from, you know, 23% to 37% or, you know, the Trump administration would like to lower them to 15. That fear is actually pouring uh, gasoline on what already is a hot market. So not only are we seeing, um, in particularly for private sellers, uh, uh, but not only are we seeing companies come to market, we are in the market with some things where the sellers are saying, listen, I, I know initially I said, hey, if this closes in Q1, that's fine. I'm not in a hurry. What we're hearing is I'd really like to get this done this year. I don't want to take that risk, even though traditionally when Congress makes tax increases, they make them effective the next year. When they make tax decreases, they have on occasion made those uh, effective to the beginning of the year. But, but legally and legislatively, they can do whatever they want. And so we are seeing sellers feel like the, uh, the odds of the blue wave are probably better than they felt they were uh, a couple of months ago. And they just don't want to take the risk of having to pay double in taxes if they sell their business. Rob, I have to ask you about SPACs. They blew up this year. I mean, there were a couple of big ones and then suddenly almost everything, you know, related to deal making seemed to be, you know, a SPAC being raised. It's the new private equity or something. What what happened to have this explosion of special purpose acquisition vehicles? Well, that's interesting because we are seeing SPACs have more interest in our deals that we're selling than we ever had in the past. And I think part of it is uh, SPACs were, you, were, were historically viewed as the capital of last resort. They were very dilutive to sellers, and they maybe weren't raised by the most reputable investors. That's changed. I think people are feeling like, hey, SPACs are a way to access public markets without having to go through um, you know, the typical roadshow and IPO. So they, they still can be more dilutive than a sale, but I think part of it is um, – Again, it gets back to the ability to raise capital, and so a lot of SPACs were raised pre-COVID that needed to put money to work. They're raised by sophisticated investors with good reputations, and you know I think as the public markets have held up, um, becoming public is still uh, for the right company. It's a way to go public uh, in a in a quicker and sometimes cheaper way. So we we are seeing uh, more SPACs than we've ever seen. Uh, They're not the right outcome for everybody, but we are seeing them participate more in the companies we have for sale. All right, Rob, thank you for that update. Always fascinating to speak with Rob Brown, CEO of Lincoln International on the deal landscape. Once again, a major deal today in the shale space. Concho being bought by Conoco for $9.7 billion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.